Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part two of Born Again, Book of Mormon. I will get to what I mean by that title here in a few minutes. However, first, I want to make the announcement that today is Friday, May 22nd, 2020. I am successfully completing nine weeks of putting up a new podcast at Radio Free Mormon every weekday during the coronavirus pandemic to help those of my listeners who may be sheltering at home weather the storm. And as I have announced periodically this week, this will be the final week to which I will make this commitment of putting up a new episode every weekday. As restrictions relax, business is picking up, and I will not be able, unfortunately, to dedicate the amount of time required, which is really about five to six hours every day, plus research time in the evenings, to putting up a new podcast every weekday. If you will recall back to the first podcast in this series nine weeks ago, I decided to do my best to put up a new podcast every day when I saw that other people, such as Andrew Lloyd Webber, was streaming videos of himself playing some of his famous songs at the piano, and he was going to do that on a daily basis to help those who are sheltering at home. I also saw that Patrick Stewart was going to be reading Shakespeare on a daily basis in order to help those who are sheltering at home, so I thought, if they can do it, why can't I? If you will permit me, I want to go back and look at the different titles of all the different episodes I have put up here in the past nine weeks. Yes, I'm going to be calling that Roll Up Yonder. This goes back to Radio Free Mormon number 130. Once again, today is number 176, so we are 46 episodes in to this nine-week effort. Radio Free Mormon number 130 was titled Backdating Prophecy. That was published on March 22, 2020. Then on March 24th, this is really the beginning of this effort, March 24th, Radio Free Mormon 131, My Corona. March 25th was when I started my series on General Conference McNuggets. That was when I was scrambling in order to cover the prior General Conference from October of 2019 prior to the April 2020 General Conference. I put up the first part in that series on March 25th, the second part of General Conference McNuggets on March 26th, the third part on March 27th, the fourth part on March 30th, the fifth part on March 31st. Part 6 came out on April 1st, Part 7 came out on April 2nd, and finally Part 8 of General Conference McNuggets, that was episode 139 that came out on April 3rd, 2020, just in time for General Conference of April 2020 to begin. There was a two-day break for the weekend, and then I was hard at it again, giving a brief recap of some of the important talks from the April 2020 General Conference in Radio Free Mormon episode 140, a conference unlike any other. On April 7th, I released three different episodes containing audio recordings that had been obtained by Radio Free Mormon relating to the BYUPD investigation of the Joseph Bishop MTC sex scandal. That was Radio Free Mormon episodes 141, 142, and 143, all of them issued on April 7th, 2020. On April 8th, I issued episode 144 titled, There Will Come Soft Rains. April 9th was From Childhood's Hour. And by the way, there may be some of my listeners who actually got that reference. That is the opening line from one of my favorite poems by Edgar Allan Poe, From Childhood's Hour. The name of the poem is Alone, and the first opening lines are From Childhood's Hour, I have not been as others were, I have not seen as others saw, I could not bring my passions from a common spring. And it goes on from there. 
That was a little bit of an inside joke from me to any Edgar Allan Poe fans that might be lurking among my listenership. On April 10th, episode 146, that time I got molested as a kid. April 13th, hiding in plain sight. April 14th, the Book of Mormon on trial. April 15th, overcoming gravitational fields. April 16th, wax on, wax off. April 17th, three-dimensional chess. April 20th, Days of Thunder. April 21st, Gen Con warm-up. April 22nd, The Restoration Proclamation. April 23rd, The Essay That Started It All. April 24th, Take Me Home, Country Roads. April 27th, Bad Apologetics. April 28th, Adam God finale. April 29th, Revelation Revolution. Oh my gosh, just going back over this, I cannot believe that I actually put out an episode every weekday for the past nine weeks. April 30th, Special Report, MTC Sex Scandal Cover-Up. And the hits just keep on coming. May 1st, Magic and the Book of Mormon. May 4th, my interview with John Larson. May 5th, Magic and the Book of Mormon Part 2. May 6th, Little Trouble in Big China. May 7th, a Mormon in the dance department. May 8th, the antipathetic polygamist. May 11th, tithing refund. May 12th, my last talk in sacrament meeting. May 13th was part one of my conversation with Jonathan Streeter. A bad defense is the worst offense. May 14th was special report, Utah State Records Committee hearing. May 15th was part two of A Bad Defense is the Worst Offense. May 18th was part three, the final part of my conversation with Jonathan Streeter, A Bad Defense is the Worst Offense. May 19th, we're getting closer now to the present, the 14 fundamentals of following the prophet. May 20th, Wednesday update. And finally, yesterday, May 21st, Born Again, Book of Mormon. That was episode 175. Today's episode is 176. And once again, the title of today's episode is Born Again, Book of Mormon, Part 2. I received a lot of listener feedback on yesterday's episode regarding the Born Again Book of Mormon and how the Book of Mormon appears to teach something about salvation very different from what the modern LDS church teaches. I received one comment from a listener who was disappointed by the fact that it was only half an hour. I had done my very best to boil down the elements of that research into as small a package as possible because I wanted to keep it moving. I wanted to keep the interest of the listeners as best as I was able to. But for at least one listener, it was too short. Well, for those of you who were interested by this subject, I have good news for you, and that is that today I'm going to be doing part two of that subject, which could also be called Salvation by Grace in the Book of Mormon. I mentioned yesterday that I had written a paper, somewhat of a scholarly paper for publication in a scholarly journal. That was the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, where the longer version of that paper appeared back in the early 1990s. What you may not know is that I wrote a second paper. It was a follow-up paper to the first paper, and in that second paper, I attempted to answer some of the questions that were raised by the first paper. This was a subject that consumed my study and my thinking during this time period. And if the Book of Mormon teaches salvation by grace, as it appears to do, and as I set forth in my first paper and attempted to demonstrate in yesterday's podcast, then that fact alone raises certain other questions regarding the subject of salvation. And my thought was, if the Book of Mormon indeed teaches this concept of salvation by grace, then perhaps the Book of Mormon also gives answers to the issues that are raised by that teaching. So I did my best to set forth those questions that are raised, and I came up with six of them, and then I wrote a follow-up paper seeking to address those issues from the Book of Mormon. Now, this paper has never seen 
the light of day because I submitted the second paper to the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies and they went thumbs down on it. They rejected this second paper from publication. They did not tell me why. They didn't give me any reasons. They simply rejected it. So I do not know why it is that the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies rejected the second paper on the same subject that they had actually accepted for the first paper. Maybe it wasn't up to their standards of scholarly rigor, or maybe it went into areas and came up with ideas that they felt uncomfortable publishing in an LDS-related journal. As I say, I can't tell you why they rejected it, only that they did reject it. Once again, the young and aspiring author must learn to take rejection in stride. However, I want to share with you today the contents of that second paper. That second paper that is an unpublished manuscript and the ideas of which have never appeared in any form, at least any form, that was authored by yours truly. Now I have to warn you, this paper is written in scholarly language. I never took the time to boil it down and try and make it something that was more accessible to the general public like I did with the first paper and which I performed yesterday, but I am going to try doubly hard to make this interesting in the way I present it. Here it goes. This is called Reflections on Redemption and subtitled Supplemental Thoughts on the Plan of Redemption as Taught in the Book of Mormon. Introduction. Elsewhere, I have written regarding the plan of redemption as taught in the Book of Mormon. Then I give a footnote one and I cite to my first article. This was a wonderful experience for me. It was a vanity citation. Yeah, I got to cite to myself. I was so happy about being able to do that, that I actually had something that was published that I could cite to in a subsequent paper. Wow, what a thrill. <laughs> That article suggested that the Book of Mormon uniformly teaches a consistent and identifiable plan for redeeming mankind. In summary form, the plan of redemption, as taught in the Book of Mormon, consists of the following elements. Number one, in order to be saved, men must obey the commandments of God. Number two, because of the fall of Adam and Eve, all mankind inherit from their first parents a carnal nature. Number three, this carnal nature causes mankind to be an enemy to God, incapable of obedience to the commandments, and therefore incapable of being saved. As I'm reading the synopsis of the first paper, I'm becoming aware of the fact that I really didn't cover everything that was in the paper in my summary form from yesterday's podcast, but hopefully this summary will help set the stage for what is to follow in this second paper. Number four, to overcome this carnal nature, God has provided a way through the atonement of his son, whereby men may be redeemed from their carnal nature to a spiritual state. Number five, if men are to be redeemed, they must call upon the Lord in the spirit of true humility, faith, and repentance. And finally, number six, if they do so, God will redeem them by the power of the Holy Ghost. In support of this thesis, numerous examples of persons in the Book of Mormon who experienced this redemptive process were examined. I went over those in yesterday's podcast. I then say that Mormon's sermon on faith, hope, and charity was also analyzed. So I didn't analyze that in yesterday's podcast, and I'm not going to go over it here. But apparently, it was my understanding and analysis that Mormon's sermon on faith, hope, and charity tended to support that argument or to support that position of what the Book of Mormon teaches regarding soteriology. Remember that word? That's the $5 word that means the study of salvation or the theology of salvation. I then have a couple of very long footnotes, which I'm not going to bore you with. There are some footnotes later on that I will bore you with, but I'm going to try and keep those down to a minimum and actually only go into the ones that I think are interesting. 
This understanding of the plan of redemption raises a host of questions. Okay, so here now I get to the questions that this soteriology in the Book of Mormon raises. Among these are, number one, is there any necessary content to the carnal man's cry to God? In other words, is there something special we're supposed to say when we pray to God for salvation and redemption and mercy in order to receive it? Number two, once carnal man has been redeemed, is it possible for him to revert again to the carnal state? This issue is sometimes called the once saved, always saved question. Number three, once redeemed, what must be done to remain redeemed? Number four, how does the teaching of the Book of Mormon regarding the plan of redemption impact the principle of man's agency? Number five, are the qualifications for being redeemed too easy? And finally, number six, If man is really incapable of obeying the commandments, why does God nevertheless require such obedience in order to be saved? This paper will seek to address these questions. See, this is a scholarly language that I really don't like too much, but I'm required to write in when I submit it to a scholarly journal. This paper will seek to address these questions using the Book of Mormon as its primary text. Number one, is there any necessary content to the carnal man's cry to God? Numerous examples of the carnal man's cry to God are recorded in the Book of Mormon, which cry led to redemption. The redemption prayer is not ritualistically given word for word, as are the baptism and sacrament prayers. The redemption prayers are not long and flowery, but concise and full of feeling. I then give a footnote to that. That's footnote number six, in which I state, a notable exception to the rule of conciseness may be contained in 2 Nephi 4, 16 through 35, sometimes referred to as the Psalm of Nephi. Nephi was a man reputed for his righteousness, even in his youth. He was favored of God with great manifestations, some of which are referred to in the Psalm of Nephi itself. Though a daring and obedient son and disciple, Nephi nevertheless seems to have been somewhat prideful in his own strength, during his earlier days. The Lord may have been aware of this failing, for once, when Nephi was bound by his brothers, he called upon God for strength to break his bands. Instead of giving him the strength requested, the Lord simply loosed the bands from off Nephi's hands and feet. Yes, I mentioned that yesterday, but I go on here. In spite of all his earlier righteousness, later in life, Nephi despaired because of his own failings and weaknesses, which he was apparently incapable of surmounting and overcoming on his own. As he put it in his psalm, O wretched man that I am, yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh, my soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. I am encompassed about, Nephi writes, I am encompassed about because of the temptations and the sins which do so easily beset me. And when I desire to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my sins. Nephi now asks the question, why should I yield to sin because of my flesh? Yea, why should I give way to temptations that the evil one may have place in my heart to destroy my peace and afflict my soul? Why am I angry because of my enemy? In response to his question now, Nephi seems to decide he must rely upon the Lord to do what he cannot. See how this fits into the teaching of the Book of Mormon on salvation by grace? And so Nephi cries unto God, O Lord, wilt thou redeem my soul? May the gates of hell be continually shut before me, because that my heart is broken and my spirit is contrite. O Lord, I have trusted in thee, and I will trust in thee forever. I will not put my trust in the arm of flesh, for I know that cursed is he that putteth his trust in the arm of flesh. Yea, cursed is he that putteth his trust in man, or maketh flesh his arm. Yea, I know that God will give liberally to him that asketh. An echo of James 1.5 there. I know that God will give liberally to him that asketh. Yea, my God will give me 
if I ask, not amiss. See, all he has to do is ask in order to be saved. This is what I'm driving at. Therefore, I will lift up my voice unto thee. See how this phrase and this concept keeps getting repeated in the Psalm of Nephi? Yea, I will cry unto thee, my God, the rock of my righteousness. Behold, my voice shall forever ascend up unto thee, my rock and mine everlasting God. Amen. The Psalm of Nephi is particularly striking because it was not given by a person who had committed atrocious and unspeakable acts. Well, you know, other than that unfortunate incident with Laban. But the psalm is given by Nephi, who is at least presented in the text as being a person who has not committed atrocious and unspeakable acts, but by a great prophet of God who had spent his entire life striving with all his might and main to keep the commandments of the Lord and do his will. And yet, Nephi ultimately comes to the point late in life when he despairs over his persistent iniquities and calls upon the Lord to redeem his soul. And Nephi asks this favor of the Lord, not on the basis of Nephi's own past righteousness, but because his heart is broken and his spirit is contrite. Considering the context of Nephi's life in which the psalm is set, it is possible that the psalm of Nephi is itself Nephi's cry unto the Lord for redemption. So here I'm inserting in a lengthy footnote another example of somebody in the Book of Mormon crying for redemption and apparently receiving it. And basically this is another example of this happening in the Book of Mormon that I stumbled upon after the first paper was already published. So I couldn't include it there. I would have if I could have. That I'm now bringing it up after the fact as a lengthy footnote in this second paper. I think it's a good example and I think it goes along with the people of King Benjamin who were righteous and yet needed something more. And what they needed to do was to call on the Lord for mercy and he heard their cry and gave it to them immediately as I talked about in yesterday's podcast. Though the Book of Mormon does not set forth a specific formula for the prayer of redemption, now I'm back to the main body of the paper. One element seems relatively constant, the plea for mercy. King Benjamin's people cried to the Lord, Oh, have mercy. That's Mosiah 4 and 2. Alma the Younger exclaimed, O Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me. Alma 36 and 18. King Lamoni pleaded, O Lord, have mercy according to thy abundant mercy. Alma 18 and 41. Amulek instructed the Zoramites to cry unto him for mercy, for he is mighty to save. That's Alma 34, 19. Abinadi referred to the unredeemed as those who never called upon the Lord, while the arms of mercy were extended toward them. That's Mosiah 16 and 12. Are you detecting a pattern yet? Alma the Younger declared to the people of Ammonihah, Therefore, whosoever repenteth and hardeneth not his heart, he shall have claim on mercy through mine only begotten Son, unto a remission of his sins, and these shall enter into my rest. That's Alma chapter 12 and verse 34. And Alma the Younger subsequently told the Zoramites that whoso repents shall find mercy. And that's Alma chapter 32 and verse 13. With all this in mind, It perhaps comes as no surprise that the plan of redemption is also referred to by Alma the Younger as the plan of mercy. That's Alma 42 verses 13 through 15. So that's my section dealing with the content of the cry for redemption. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be flowery. All it has to be is a heartfelt cry to God for mercy. Okay, now for the second issue. Once carnal man has been redeemed, is it possible for him to revert again to the carnal state? As I said at the beginning, this is the issue of once saved, always saved, that born-again Christians have to struggle with and come down on different sides of the question, depending upon who you ask. To this question, the Book of Mormon appears to give an unequivocal yes. 
A redeemed person can indeed fall again to the carnal state. Okay, so the Book of Mormon says, once saved, not always saved, at least according to my reading of it, which I'll set forth here. Alma the Younger indicates this during his address to the people of Zarahemla. It will be recalled that Alma II first asks his audience whether they have been redeemed. This is Alma chapter 5, verse 14, where he says, And now behold, I ask of you, my brethren of the church, have ye spiritually been born of God? Have ye received his image in your countenances? Have ye experienced this mighty change in your hearts? Later on in the same discourse, Alma the Younger indicates that a person who has been redeemed, having been born of God and having experienced a mighty change of heart, can nevertheless fall from that position when he asks, And now behold, I say unto you, my brethren, if ye have experienced the change of heart, and if ye have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, can ye feel so now? That's Alma chapter 5, verse 26. From this we learn that a person once redeemed does not necessarily remain redeemed. One can fall from redemption. King Benjamin, whose entire discourse laid the foundation for the redemption of his people, had this to say regarding one's ability to fall after being redeemed. Now, this is Mosiah chapter 2, verses 36 and 37. I'll read it quickly. And now I say unto you, my brethren, that after ye have known and have been taught these things concerning redemption, that's a parenthetical comment that I inserted, if ye should transgress and go contrary to that which has been spoken, that ye do withdraw yourselves from the Spirit of the Lord, that it may have no place in you to guide you in wisdom's paths, that ye may be blessed, prospered, and preserved, I say unto you that the man that doeth this, the same cometh out in open rebellion against God. Therefore he listeth to obey the evil spirit and becometh an enemy to all righteousness. Therefore the Lord hath no place in him, for he dwelleth not in unholy temples. That's Mosiah 2 verses 36 and 37. I think I said that at the beginning. Later in his sermon, King Benjamin says that the natural man is an enemy to God unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and putteth off the natural man and becometh a saint. And we all know that's from Mosiah 3.19. That's a seminary scripture. At least it was when I was a kid. Now to my commentary. Apparently then, should such a redeemed individual cease yielding to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, but instead list to obey that evil spirit, he becomes once again an enemy to all righteousness just as he was in his original natural state, an enemy to God. In other words, he returns again to his carnal state, at least according to the Book of Mormon. Given the fact that an individual can fluctuate between redeemed and fallen states, the question may now be asked, as of what time in their lives are people judged as to whether they are eternally redeemed or not? According to the Book of Mormon, the answer is that they are redeemed as of the moment of their death. If men are in a redeemed state at the moment of death, they will be saved. If they are not in a redeemed state at the moment of death, they will be damned. I then give a footnote to this, which is footnote 10, which I think I'm going to read here. This concept of either saved or damned, as taught in the Book of Mormon, may appear to be in conflict with the concept of three degrees of glory taught in section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Well, that's probably because it is in conflict. An attempt at resolving this apparent discrepancy is beyond the scope of this paper. An intriguing possibility may be found in this statement by Franklin D. Richards. Hmm, I wonder what he says. Those in the terrestrial kingdom, they will go forward like unto the new moon, increasing in knowledge and brightness and glory until they come to a fullness of celestial glory. While those who will not go forward to a fullness will go back to that lesser glory, which is likened unto the stars of heaven. This is found in Journal of Discourses, volume 25, page 236. Wow, I've forgotten that quote from Franklin D. Richards, but that is in the Journal of Discourses, where the idea is put forth that the terrestrial kingdom, the kingdom that is likened unto the moon, 
is really not a permanent place of residence for those who go there. Instead, it's more of a way station where ultimately over time, some of the inhabitants of the terrestrial kingdom are filtered out and up to the celestial kingdom while the rest are filtered out and down to the telestial kingdom. It does not appear, I go on in this very interesting footnote, it does not appear that this concept originated with Franklin Richards. For in a small 30-page handwritten booklet produced by Richards from 1841 to 1844, he attributed a similar statement to Hiram Smith. Yeah, Hiram Smith is the first person that I'm aware of that is known to have uttered this kind of sentiment about the terrestrial kingdom. And here's what Franklin D. Richards writes that Hiram Smith said on August 1st of 1843. Those of the terrestrial glory either advance to the celestial or recede to the telestial. Else, the moon would not be a type. It waxes and wanes. And this is from Franklin D. Richards' pamphlet, Words of the Prophets, page 24. So not only did Hiram Smith teach the same concept, he saw the symbol of the terrestrial kingdom being the moon as significant to this fact, that as the moon waxes and wanes, even so, those of the terrestrial glory either advance to the celestial or recede to the telestial. So once again, this was my attempt to see if we could possibly resolve the apparent conflict between the teachings in section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants regarding the three degrees of glory and the position that the Book of Mormon holds that one is either saved or damned. And while it does not do so perfectly, and while that subject is beyond the scope of this paper, as I state, it is interesting that the same idea may have been on the minds of other and earlier Latter-day Saints, including Hiram Smith. Now, going back to the body of my paper and returning to King Benjamin's sermon, therefore, if that man who falls from his redeemed state, that's my parenthetical comment, therefore, if that man who falls from his redeemed state repenteth not, and remaineth and dieth an enemy to God, the demands of divine justice to awaken his immortal soul to a lively sense of his own guilt, which doth cause him to shrink from the presence of the Lord, and doth fill his breast with guilt and pain and anguish, which is like an unquenchable fire whose flame ascendeth up forever and ever. So that's what King Benjamin says is the fate of the person who dies an enemy to God. Once again, the idea being that the judgment in the Book of Mormon is based upon whether a person is in a redeemed state at the moment of their death or whether they are in a saved state at the moment of their death. This is from Mosiah chapter 2, verses 38, and then verse 39 says, And now I say unto you, that mercy, once again we see mercy coming in, that mercy hath no claim on that man, the one who dies an enemy to God. Therefore his final doom is to endure a never-ending torment. From this it seems that one is judged as to one's redeemed state at the time of death. It is also apparent that even should one fall from the redeemed state, one can again repent and regain redemption, thereby allowing mercy a claim on that man. As to the issue of the time of one's judgment, however, Amulek, in teaching the Zoramites, made the issue crystal clear. Now, this is an interesting insight, which came to me sometime in the early 1990s. And here I quote from Alma chapter 34, verses 32 through 34. Once again, this is a very familiar scripture, so I'll do it quickly. For behold, this life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. Yea, behold, the day of this life is the day for men to perform their labors. And now, as I said unto you before, as ye have had so many witnesses, therefore I beseech of you that ye do not procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end. And then I put in parentheses, death. Okay? Because that's the end that I think he's talking about. Don't procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end. For after this day of life, 
which is given us to prepare for eternity, behold, if we do not improve our time while in this life, then cometh the night of darkness, wherein there can be no labor performed. Ye cannot say when ye are brought to that awful crisis that I will repent, that I will return to my God. Nay, ye cannot say this, for that same spirit, and this is the important part here for purposes of my analysis, which will follow, for that same spirit which doth possess your bodies at the time that ye go out of this life, that same spirit will have power to possess your body in that eternal world. The Book of Mormon declares that this life is a time to prepare to meet God. We cannot say once we are dead and brought to that awful crisis that we will repent. We no longer have that option. The chance is forever lost. And the reason why is because that same spirit which doth possess your bodies at the time that you go out of this life, that same spirit will have power to possess your body in that eternal world. This passage has often been interpreted to mean that because our personal or individual spirit will still be the spirit with power to inhabit or possess our body in the resurrection, we will naturally have all the same evil inclinations and wicked desires after death as we do in this life. I'm sure we've all heard that interpretation given to this passage. Though this may be the case, it doesn't appear to be at all what the original author meant. An examination of the context suggests the author meant that the spirit whether God's spirit or the devil's spirit, not our own, which possesses our bodies at the point of death, will have power to possess our bodies in the eternal world. In other words, if we are redeemed at the point of death and possessed by God's spirit, i.e. we are still yielding to the Holy Spirit at that time, then God's spirit will have power to possess us in the eternal world beyond mortality. If, on the other hand, we are not redeemed at the point of death, having listed to obey that evil spirit, then that same evil spirit will have power to possess us in that eternal world. That this is the correct interpretation is borne out by consideration of the verses immediately following. And now I read Alma chapter 34, verse 35. For behold, if ye have procrastinated the day of your repentance, even until death, behold, ye have become subject to the spirit of the devil, and he doth seal you his. Therefore, the spirit of the Lord hath withdrawn from you, and hath no place in you, and the devil hath all power over you. And this is the final state of the wicked. From the above, it is evident the Book of Mormon teaches that men are judged as to whether they are redeemed eternally as of the point of their death. Issue number three now. Once carnal man has been redeemed, what must he do or she do? Sorry, ladies. What must he do or she do to remain redeemed? There are a plethora of scriptures that deal with this issue, and in essence, they all appear to say the same thing. In order to remain redeemed, one must continue in the way that got one redeemed in the first place. Continue in faith, repentance, humility, and calling upon the Lord for redemption. As Nephi put it, And now, my beloved brethren, after ye have gotten into the straight and narrow way, and for context, the straight and narrow way was gotten into by faith, repentance, baptism, and the Holy Ghost, I would ask if all is done. Behold, I say unto you, Nay, for ye have not come thus far, save it were by the word of Christ, with unshakable faith in him, relying wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save. So you've come as far as you have by relying wholly upon the merits of Christ who is mighty to save. Not on your own merits, on his merits. That's what Nephi says. Wherefore, ye must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men. Wherefore, if ye shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ and endure to the end, Behold, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. That's 2 Nephi 31, verses 19 and 20, another seminary scripture. 
Here, Nephi seems to say that men continue on the straight and narrow path by the same means that they got on it in the first place, i.e. through Christ, relying wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save, not relying at all upon their own merits or their own attempts at righteousness. Even as one does not become redeemed through one's own efforts, even so one does not remain redeemed through one's own efforts. I'm starting to get a hint as to maybe why this got rejected. It is through the grace of God as activated in one's life through faith in Christ. King Benjamin described to his people what they must do to always rejoice and be filled with the love of God and always retain a remission of their sins. He told them, believe in God. And again, believe that ye must repent of your sins and forsake them and humble yourselves before God and ask in sincerity of heart that he would forgive you. And then I have a footnote on the part where King Benjamin says that you must forsake your sins. You must repent of your sins and forsake them. That's footnote 13, which says, Whereas one definition of forsake is to quit or leave entirely, the more common definition is to give up or renounce. Indeed, as we have seen, it is beyond the capacity of fallen man to quit sinning. Therefore, to require fallen man to forsake his sins in that sense of quitting as a requirement to redemption would be problematic. Rather, the more common definition of forsake as renounce appears to make better sense, inasmuch as it is within fallen man's power to renounce his sins, though not to leave off committing them altogether. So you can see I'm having to do a little fancy footwork there with some of the teachings in the Book of Mormon. It is not something that can readily be all aggregated into one consistent and pellucidly clear soteriology. But I think the majority of evidence tends to show salvation by grace being taught and therefore hopefully it's appropriate to try and make these minor adjustments and talk about the definition of certain requirements in the Book of Mormons, such as where King Benjamin says you must repent of your sins and forsake them. Once his people achieved the redeemed state where they have come to the knowledge of the glory of God and known of his goodness and have tasted of his love and received a remission of their sins, which causes such exceedingly great joy, King Benjamin then informed them how to retain this redeemed state. Here's what he says. Even so, I would that you should remember and always retain in remembrance the greatness of God. So that's one thing. And your own nothingness and his goodness and long suffering towards you unworthy creatures. And humble yourselves even in the depths of humility, calling on the name of the Lord daily and standing steadfastly in the faith of that which is to come, which was spoken by the mouth of the angel, i.e. the faith in the coming of Jesus Christ into mortality. And behold, I say unto you that if ye do this, ye shall always rejoice and be filled with the love of God, and always retain a remission of your sins. See, King Benjamin actually addresses this question head on. Other scriptures in the Book of Mormon echo these sentiments. By the way, that reference from King Benjamin was Mosiah chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. In Alma 7, verse 3, we find, And behold, I, this is Alma the Younger speaking, And behold, I have come to Gideon, that's where he's preaching, Gideon, the city of Gideon, having great hopes and much desire that I should find that ye had humbled yourselves before God, and that ye had continued in the supplication of his grace. See, there's this emphasis on once a person has been redeemed by calling upon God, they need to continue to call upon God in order to continue to remain redeemed. You continue to be redeemed in the same way that you became redeemed in the first place, which kind of makes sense when you stop to think about it. And that ye had continued in the supplication of his grace, that I should find that ye were blameless before him. So you get blameless by continuing to supplicate God for his grace. 
just like King Benjamin told his people to call on the name of the Lord daily. And then in Alma chapter 13, verses 27 through 30, Alma the Younger says something similar to a different audience. And now, my brethren, I wish from the inmost part of my heart, yea, with great anxiety, even unto pain, that you would hearken unto my words and cast off your sins and not procrastinate the day of your repentance, but that you would humble yourselves before the Lord and call upon his holy name and watch and pray continually that you may not be tempted above that which ye can bear and thus be led by the Holy Spirit, becoming humble, meek, submissive, patient, full of love and all longsuffering, having faith on the Lord, having a hope that ye shall receive eternal life, having the love of God always in your hearts, that ye may be lifted up at the last day and enter into his rest. And may the Lord grant unto you repentance, that ye may not bring down his wrath upon you, that ye may not be bound down by the chains of hell, that ye may not suffer the second death. Oh my gosh, I go on and on about this idea about praying continually. I'm not going to read all of these, but Alma 34 verse 39 has this expression where Amulek exhorts his brethren to be watchful unto prayer continually that ye may not become his subjects at the last day. That would be the devil's subjects at the last day. Alma 37 verse 33, preach unto them repentance and faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach them to humble themselves, etc., and to withstand every temptation with their faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. Alma 38 verses 14 and 15 says this, do not say, O God, I thank thee that we are better than our brethren. See, that is the prayer that is not one of salvation. This is the prayer of the Zoramites that is being talked about. The prayer of the Zoramites was one of pride, not humility, was one of self-sufficiency, and not one of needing the grace of God. So here it says, Do not say, O God, I thank thee that we are better than our brethren, but rather say, O Lord, forgive my unworthiness and remember my brethren in mercy. Yea, acknowledge your unworthiness before God at all times. So this is something else that's required in order to maintain this state of redemption, to acknowledge your unworthiness before God at all times. It's not to continue to try as hard as you can to be righteous and therefore to proclaim your righteousness before God. No, it's to recognize the fact that, hey, we're all human. We make mistakes. I'm okay. You're okay. We're just not perfect. We're never going to be perfect, but that's okay because God has redeemed us through calling upon his name. And in order to remain redeemed, we continue to call upon God's name for mercy and we acknowledge our unworthiness before God at all times. This seems to be the consistent message of the Book of Mormon, which is why I'm lining up all these quotes here on page 13 of my paper. Helaman chapter 3 verse 35. Nevertheless, they did fast and pray oft and did wax stronger and stronger in their humility, not their righteousness, their humility, and firmer and firmer in the faith of Christ, unto the filling their souls with joy and consolation, yea, even to the purifying and the sanctification of their hearts. Which sanctification cometh because of what? Obeying the commandments? No. Which sanctification cometh because of their yielding their hearts unto God? Then 3 Nephi chapter 18, verse 15, this would be the teachings of Jesus. Verily, verily, I, that's Jesus speaking, verily, verily, I say unto you, ye must watch and pray always, lest ye be tempted by the devil and ye be led away captive by him. So there's that praying always, that daily prayer type of theme coming up in 3 Nephi chapter 18, verse 15. And finally, Moroni chapter 6, verse 4. So we've gone from one end of the Book of Mormon to the end, from 1 Nephi all the way to Moroni now over the course of the last two podcasts, which says this, And after they had been received unto baptism and were wrought upon and cleansed by the power of the Holy Ghost, they were numbered among the people of the Church of Christ, and their names were taken that they might be remembered and nourished 
by the good word of God, to keep them in the right way, to keep them continually watchful unto prayer, continually watchful unto prayer, relying alone upon the merits of Christ, who was the author and the finisher of their faith. See, it's all over the Book of Mormon, like white on rice, as I began yesterday's podcast. From the above quoted scriptures, I go on. It is apparent that the tenor of the Book of Mormon is to the effect that once redeemed, one must continue watchful unto prayer even daily unto the Lord for his mercy and protection, that one must continue in faith, repentance, and humility. If a person does this, God will save him or her. Once again, sorry, ladies. If not, he will fall from redemption and must either repent anew to regain his redeemed status or else die in his fallen state and subject himself to the devil eternally. Once again, as I'm reading through this, and by the way, I haven't read through this in, I don't know, 25 years, but as I'm reading through this, I'm beginning to get a picture as to why it is that the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies gave me the big old thumbs down on publishing this second paper. Okay, so we've got three of the questions down and three more to go. Number four, how do the teachings of the Book of Mormon regarding the plan of redemption impact the principle of man's agency? I'll try and go quickly here. The Book of Mormon teaches that carnal man in his natural state, unredeemed by the Spirit of God, is incapable of doing good because his carnal nature is evil continually. Did you realize the Book of Mormon taught that? That's pretty amazing. Let me say that again. I know I'm trying to go fast, but this is important. The Book of Mormon teaches that carnal man in his natural state, unredeemed by the Spirit of God, is incapable of doing good. Why? Because his carnal nature is evil continually. And for that, see Ether chapter 3, verse 2, and also Moroni chapter 7, verses 6 and 10. The Book of Mormon further states that God is the sole source of all that is good in the world. And that's Ether chapter 4, verse 12, and Moroni chapter 7, verse 12. Hence, man cannot be an independent source of good. This is a remarkable teaching that I find in the Book of Mormon. We would tend to think that we could go out and do good works, whether we're in the church or outside the church, whether we are in a redeemed state or in a fallen state. But the Book of Mormon seems to disagree with this, and it seems to be using good and evil as a term of art. I'll get to that here in a second. Because carnal man is incapable of doing good, he is likewise incapable of choosing to do good. So this is getting to how the Book of Mormon teaching on this subject impacts the principle of man's agency. This concept, as taught in the Book of Mormon, is at variance with the idea that men are free agents and that they may choose in any situation to do good or evil. The Book of Mormon indicates that no matter what choice fallen man makes, it is a bad choice and is counted unto him for evil. What does Moroni chapter 7 verse 11 say? For a bitter fountain cannot bring forth good water. The Book of Mormon teaches that man does indeed have a form of agency, but not so broadly as to cover choices made about any given situation. Rather, the agency described in the Book of Mormon for man is extremely limited. The only good choice that carnal man may make is to choose Christ. Lehi indicates that it was not the fall that introduced man's agency into the lone and dreary world. We hear that a lot in the church, don't we? That it was the fall that gave man his agency. But what I'm saying here is that Lehi suggests it wasn't the fall that gave him his agency, but rather the redemption that gave man his agency. The agency thus introduced is very simple. Choose Christ or choose the devil. And here I quote from 2 Nephi chapter 2, verses 26 through 27. Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. We all know that scripture. 
and the Messiah cometh in the fullness of time, that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. And because that they are redeemed from the fall, they have become free forever. See, not because of the fall, but because of the redemption is what makes men free forever. And women too, by the way, knowing good from evil, to act for themselves and not to be acted upon. Wherefore, men are free according to the flesh, and all things are given them which are expedient unto man. And they are free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all men, or to choose captivity and death according to the captivity and power of the devil. So there it seems to suggest that man's agency is given him and women's agency is given her because of the redemption that Christ offers. And that once that agency is given, their choice is now very simple. Either choose life through Christ or choose death through the devil. I go on. God gave Adam his agency, i.e. the power that he should act for himself, when he introduced into the garden the forbidden fruit in opposition to the tree of life. Adam could choose the one or the other. After Adam listed to obey that evil spirit and chose the forbidden fruit, he with Eve was driven out of the garden of Eden so that he could no longer choose the good, i.e. the tree of life. In this fallen state, there was no good available for man to choose. All he could choose was evil. Hence, his agency was forfeited and all mankind were lost because of the transgression of their parents. That's 2 Nephi 2 and 21. In order to repair this situation, the Messiah cometh in the fullness of time to redeem the children of men from the fall. And as noted above, because that they are redeemed from the fall, they have become free forever, i.e. had their agency restored. They are now free to make a choice between Christ and the devil. It is an agency as simple and profound as that agency given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. As their choice was between the tree of life and the tree of knowledge, or good and evil, so the choice of fallen man is between the devil and Christ. Issue number five. Are the qualifications for being redeemed too easy? It appears that some in the Book of Mormon who heard of the plan of redemption may have disregarded it because they felt that the way was too easy, that in order to merit the blessings of eternal life, more should be required of them than simply believing in Christ and calling upon his name. They wanted to do something themselves, to put forth their own works, so that they could feel that they in some degree merited their salvation. And here I have a footnote I'm going to read, footnote 16. Unfortunately, it appears that such an attitude of merit would deprive a person of one of the character attributes essential to redemption, that of humility. Humility is required to be redeemed. Yet if carnal man feels that he is doing something of himself that helps him merit redemption, he may no longer be humble. That's an interesting footnote going on with my paper. The Book of Mormon is clear, however, that carnal man may not rely upon his own merits to be redeemed, but must rely wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save. And there I have a very lengthy footnote 17, which I'm going to omit because this podcast is starting to get a little bit long. I hope you're interested in this subject. I hope I'm not boring you. Oh, actually, I do need to read this footnote. I'm sorry, this is very important because it deals with the proof text that is generally brought up to talk about how we have to do everything we can do. And then only after we've done everything we can do, then Jesus swoops in to save us with what grace we need to make up the difference. Second Nephi 25, 23 may appear to be in conflict with the plan of redemption as taught in the rest of the Book of Mormon, quote, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. It is sometimes asserted on the basis of this scripture that we must do everything that we can possibly do to obey the commandments of the Lord. 
after we have made the supreme effort and only after does the grace of Christ become effective in our lives to save us. As is unfortunately not uncommon with the English language, this particular scripture is susceptible to two completely divergent interpretations. However, and now I'm going to quote from Stephen E. Robinson's book, Are Mormons Christian? published in 1991. LDS commentators are agreed that the word after in this passage is used as a preposition of separation rather than of time. The sense is that apart from all we can do, it is ultimately by the grace of Christ that we are saved. This meaning is apparent from the fact that none of us actually does all he can do. So the way Stephen Robinson would interpret this passage is, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved apart from all we can do, or in spite of all we can do. Not literally after we've done everything that we can possibly do first. I go on in my footnote, although I am not necessarily convinced that all LDS commentators are agreed in this exegesis, because <laughs> they're not. I don't know where Stephen E. Robinson came up with that from. And I say, see Robert L. Millett and Joseph Hilding McConkie, Doctrinal Commentary on the Book of Mormon, Volume 1, pages 294 through 295, where they definitely do not agree with Stephen E. Robinson's interpretation. I am persuaded, however, I go on, I am persuaded that this interpretation is more consistent with the rest of the Book of Mormon in general and with the verse in which the statement is embedded in particular. Because the same verse says, For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children, and also our brethren, to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. So even the very context of the verse appears to support Stephen E. Robinson's interpretation because the whole point of laboring so diligently to write and persuade their children and their brethren was to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God, not to do everything they possibly could do before Jesus Christ would save them. And indeed, all the other examples in the Book of Mormon about being saved immediately and born again simply by calling upon the name of the Lord would contradict the interpretation of this passage that I think is common among LDS commentators such as Robert L. Millett and Joseph Fielding McConkie. The context indicates that the emphasis is put on salvation by the grace of and through belief in Christ, not on salvation after all we can do. Perhaps a good way to illustrate this would be to show how that emphasis would be shifted if the context of the verse were different. And now I do a recreation of what that verse would probably look like if indeed the interpretation of this one sentence were indeed that we had to do everything we could do before grace kicked in to save us. For we labor diligently to obey all the commandments of God and to teach our children and also our brethren to obey all the commandments of God. For we know that only after all we can do are we saved by the grace of Christ. So you see, that's what that verse would probably more closely resemble if indeed that interpretation were that we had to do all the commandments and obey everything as best as we possibly could before Jesus Christ's grace would save us. And I go on with the body of my paper to say it appears to have been to correct the notion that the plan of redemption was too easy that the following statement was made by Alma the Younger to his son Helaman. And this is found in Alma 37, 44 through 46. For behold, it is as easy to give heed to the word of Christ, which will point to you a straight course to eternal bliss, as it was for our fathers to give heed to this compass, which would point unto them a straight course to the promised land. So here he's talking about the Leahona, of course. And now I say, is there not a type in this thing? For just as surely as this director did bring our fathers by following its course to the promised land, shall the words of Christ, if we follow their course, carry us beyond this veil of sorrow into a far better land of promise. 
O my son, do not let us be slothful because of the easiness of the way. See, the Book of Mormon teaches the way is easy. Because of the easiness of the way, for so it was with our fathers. For so was it prepared for them that if they would look, they might live. Even so it is with us. The way is prepared, and if we will look, we may live forever. A similar thought was expressed by Alma the Younger to the Zoramites, where he says, Behold, Christ was spoken of by Moses. Yea, and behold, a type was raised up in the wilderness, that whosoever would look upon it might live, and many did look and live. This is the brazen serpent in the wilderness, of course, from the book of Numbers. But few understood the meaning of those things, and this because of the hardness of their hearts. But there were many who were so hardened that they would not look. Therefore, they perished. Now, the reason they would not look is because they did not believe that it would heal them. O my brethren, if ye could be healed by merely casting about your eyes that you might be healed, would ye not behold quickly? Or would you rather harden your hearts in unbelief and be slothful, that ye would not cast about your eyes that ye might perish? If so, woe shall come upon you. But if not so, then cast about your eyes and begin to believe in the Son of God, that he will come to redeem his people." and that he shall suffer and die to atone for their sins, and that he shall rise again from the dead, which shall bring to pass the resurrection, that all men shall stand before him to be judged at the last day according to their works. That's Alma 33, 19 through 22. Contrary, I conclude, contrary to popular slogans immortalized in poster board and needlepoint, it is simply unscriptural to attribute to Christ the statement, I never said it would be easy. I only said it would be worth it. How many of us have seen that statement in Needlepoint or on poster board in the LDS church? Jesus saying, I never said it would be easy. I only said it would be worth it. Well, that state that is commonly attributed to Jesus is actually against everything Jesus ever taught on the subject and also against what the Book of Mormon seems to teach on the subject. All the scriptures that speak to this issue, including the two from the Book of Mormon quoted above, uniformly assert that Christ did say it would be easy. And finally now, issue number six, if man is really incapable of obeying the commandments, why does God nevertheless require such obedience in order to be saved? It seems sort of like a paradox, doesn't it? When we ask a question such as this, which seeks the reason behind God's actions in an area otherwise unrevealed, we immediately step out onto speculative ground. And yet, this question demands to be asked even if it is only to respond that we just don't know the answer. But we do know a few things. First, the Book of Mormon is most emphatic that nothing short of moral perfection and absolute adherence to the commands of God will qualify one for salvation. On the other hand, the Book of Mormon is equally clear that man, or natural man at least, is completely incapable of being morally perfect and of keeping all those commandments, of doing any good whatsoever, in fact. Why does the Book of Mormon set forth such apparently divergent points of view? Why does God, through his prophets, seem to declare such mutually exclusive positions? A faithful response might be that, whatever the reason, it would likely involve bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. How might such a curious contradiction advance this godly Goal. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I did a double alliteration there. I apologize on behalf of my paper. It's a good thing it was never published. Maybe that's the reason why. According to Alma 42, God has arranged things in... <laughs> that sounds like Bush 42. No, this is Alma chapter 42. God has arranged things in this probationary period of mortality such that men will be led to him that they might be saved. In counseling his wayward son Corianton, Alma the Younger said that in order for the plan of redemption to be brought about unto men, they had to repent. Otherwise, mercy could not take 
effect. This repentance, however, could not come unto men except there were a punishment, which also was eternal as the life of the soul. Alma proceeds to reason that in order for a man to repent, he must first sin. In order for him to sin, there must be a law to sin against. And in order for there to be a law, there must be a punishment affixed for those who violate the law. And this is in Alma 42, verses 13 through 17. Hence, Alma explains to his son that, except there should be an eternal punishment, men could not repent and hence could never be redeemed. Alma conceived the purpose of eternal punishment was to cause remorse of conscience unto men. That's the expression he uses, thus leading them to repentance. This is what he says. Now, there was a punishment affixed and a just law given, which brought remorse of conscience unto man. Now, if there was no law given, if a man murdered, he should die. Would he be afraid he would die if he should murder? And also, if there was no law given against sin, men would not be afraid to sin. That's Alma 42, 18 through 20. Alma seems to conclude that the purpose of the punishment affixed is to make men afraid to sin. And once they have sinned, to bring remorse of conscience unto man in order to lead them to repent and be redeemed. If this is correct, it raises a possible solution to the question posed at the head of this section. First, we know that as to the punishment affixed, which is as eternal as the life of the soul, the Lord has revealed that the reason he calls damnation eternal or endless is not because it will go on forever, but because his name is eternal and endless. And hence, any punishment he meets out is also properly called eternal or endless, no matter the duration. And there I reference Doctrine and Covenants section 19 verses 6 through 12, but also see Alma 36 verse 12. You might want to check that one out. That's interesting. For men to think that God's punishment goes on forever when he uses the term endless torment or eternal damnation is apparently a completely intended consequence of such phraseology. God refers to this insight into the true nature of eternal punishment as a great mystery. DNC 19 and 10. God seems to want men at large to think that eternal punishment does in fact go on forever. But why? That it might work upon the hearts of men altogether for my name's glory. DNC 19 and 7. How would it be for the glory of God? Following Alma's reasoning, it would glorify God because once men had sinned by breaking the law, they would be so afraid of a literally eternal punishment that it would bring remorse of conscience unto them, such that they would be brought to repentance and redemption through the power of the atonement of Christ. But in order to be made afraid by the potential of eternal punishment, it is imperative that the law first be broken. Otherwise, there would be no fear of imposition of the punishment by God, and there would consequently be no remorse of conscience that would lead men to repent and be redeemed. In other words, in order for men to be redeemed, there must not only be a law, and there must not only be a punishment affixed to that law, but there must also be a breaking of that law, thus incurring the punishment affixed. I'm just going to say that once again because it's really important. That's why I ended this with an exclamation point in the manuscript. But there must also be a breaking of that law, thus incurring the punishment affixed. Redemption cannot come about unless there is a breaking of the law in the first place. Hence, if men are to be saved, the law given them must be one they will invariably break. For if they keep it, they will never experience remorse of conscience. They will never repent and they will never be redeemed by coming unto Christ. A law, therefore, that will have the capacity to save all men must be a law that no man can keep. 
It may be, then, that in order for the Lord to extend the possibility of redemption to all mankind, he must give to them a law sufficiently strict that it cannot possibly be obeyed, even by the most diligent. It is precisely such a law that we find set forth in the pages of the Book of Mormon. And there is somewhat of an abrupt ending to my unpublished manuscript on the subject. Although I do have several very lengthy footnotes, in fact, all of the last page, page 24, is the continuation of an entire footnote. And I do want to read the last two footnotes here very quickly. Footnote 24, if God gave a law simple enough that it could be obeyed by fallen man, obedience to that law would still not redeem him. Fallen man must be spiritually born again through the power of the Holy Ghost. No amount of obedience can accomplish this. Only a humble, faithful, repentant cry to God for mercy will do the trick. Therefore, if God gave to his children a law simple enough to be obeyed, it would be nothing but a false hope. Those who sought to do God's will would keep the law and would think that they were thereby saved, when in fact they would still be fallen. Considering themselves saved, they would have no need to repent and call upon God for mercy to redeem them from the fall. Hence, such a law would lead to the damnation of mankind and not their salvation. Paul the Apostle seems to have considered this question as well. Immediately before he declared the law of Moses a schoolmaster to lead the Jews to Christ, he stated, If there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. That's Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. See, even in this way, this understanding of the Book of Mormon, what it teaches, actually brings it into line with some of the other teachings of Paul that appear to be in conflict with what modern Mormonism teaches. Even in the same way that what the Book of Mormon teaches about salvation seems to be in conflict with what modern Mormonism teaches. And finally, this last footnote, this is where I'm going to end, I promise. It's Friday. Look, it's Memorial Day weekend coming up. You can do this. You can do hard things. It appears that C.S. Lewis may have arrived at a similar conclusion by means other than the Book of Mormon. The question of faith, he writes, arises after a man has tried his level best to practice the Christian virtues and found that he fails and seen that even if he could, he would only be giving back to God what was already God's own. In other words, he discovers his bankruptcy. And he cannot get into the right relationship with God until he has discovered the fact of our bankruptcy. When I say discovered, I mean really discovered, not simply said it parrot fashion. I am talking of really discovering this, really finding out by experience that it is true. Now we cannot, in that sense, discover our failure to keep God's law except by trying our very hardest and then failing. Unless we really try, whatever we say, there will always be at the back of our minds the idea that if we try harder next time, we shall succeed in being completely good. Thus, in one sense, the road back to God is a road of moral effort, of trying harder and harder. But in another sense, it is not trying that is ever going to bring us home. All this trying leads up to the vital moment at which you turn to God and say, you must do this, I can't. It is the change from being confident about our own efforts to the state in which we despair of doing anything for ourselves and leave it to God. C.S. Lewis concludes by saying, A serious moral effort is the only thing that will bring you to the point where you throw up the sponge. Or I think we might say here in the States, throw in the towel. Faith in Christ is the only thing to save you from despair at that point. And out of that faith in Him, good actions 
must inevitably come. That's from C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, pages 127 through 129. And I conclude this last footnote and this last paper and this podcast by writing this. The Book of Mormon provides instances of individuals who were redeemed after a serious moral effort, such as Nephi and the people of King Benjamin. Even prior to their redemption, King Benjamin noted that his subjects had been a diligent people in keeping the commandments of the Lord. C.S. Lewis's conclusion that a serious moral effort is the only thing that will lead to redemption, however, is contradicted by the numerous examples in the Book of Mormon of extremely wicked individuals who, once convicted of their sins, cried unto God for mercy and were immediately redeemed. There was no serious moral effort on their part. Such examples include Alma, Alma the Younger, King Lamoni, and the father of King Lamoni. Lewis's conclusion is also likely contradicted by such biblical examples as the Apostle Paul. Wow, I'm really feeling my oats standing toe-to-toe with C.S. Lewis, aren't I? It seems clear, though, that the Book of Mormon does indicate that the path of serious moral effort is one way to approach redemption, though not the only way. Another path appears to be a path of serious immoral effort. The Book of Mormon gives many examples of persons who become redeemed, but they are either very strict in attempting to obey God's commandments, or they are very wicked. Whereas the former may well be brought to redemption by the means suggested by C.S. Lewis, the latter, i.e. the wicked, likely repent due to extreme remorse of conscience brought on by the conviction of all their wicked deeds and the eternal punishment that they have brought upon themselves as a result. Okay, I'm looking up here at my computer screen. I have now been recording for over an hour and a half. I am at an hour and 34 minutes and 30 seconds. This is going to take me a lot of time to edit. I better get to it. I hope you have enjoyed that paper, or at least some of the thoughts that I've expressed in that paper. But before I close, I want to insert this part into the podcast. After I had finished recording this morning, but before I had begun editing, Bill Real forwarded to me a text message from a listener to the program. This is how it goes. Hi, Bill. I hope you and your family are doing well in these strange pandemic times. You don't know me, but I've been listening to your Mormon Discussion podcast since its inception. I'm an ex-LDS removed my name in 2011. Recently, with some friends, I kicked off a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn to faith in Jesus. Apparently, it's called the Outer Brightness Podcast. We were intrigued by RFM's episode 175, Born Again Book of Mormon, and have had a similar episode in our plans. We'd like to see if RFM would be interested in a joint episode to discuss the article he read and take the thoughts expressed therein a bit further. I thought that was interesting since today I had already decided to go ahead and take those thoughts expressed in that paper and go a bit further with them as I have just done in this podcast. The problem is, this listener writes in his text, I don't know how to reach him as I can't find an email. Any chance you could pass this on to him, Bill? And if he's interested, we can take up the discussion of particulars via email. So I wanted to let this listener know, since I expect this listener will be listening to this part two of Born Again Book of Mormon as well as the first part, that Bill Real did indeed forward that text message on to me. And if you'd like, you could reach me via private message at my Facebook page of Radio Free Mormon. I would be happy and very interested in taking you up on your offer to discuss the particulars of my paper, papers now, plural, on the subject of salvation by grace in the Book of Mormon. Thank you so much for your interest. Thank you so much for your invitation. This is, once again, Friday, the last day of the last week of Radio Free Mormon, putting up a new podcast every weekday. I have had a blast. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.